My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Studios. This week in the studio, a guest who joined the U.S. Army Reserves while still in high school as a medic. He was then accepted into the United States Military Academy at West Point, where he graduated with a degree in chemical engineering. He then was selected for the infantry branch, where he quickly completed Ranger, Airborne, and Air Assault School. His first deployment while being assigned to the 1st Infantry Division was Afghanistan. After returning and wanting more from his career, my guest attended and passed the Special Forces Assessment and Qualification course, following those quickly with Pathfinder, Seer, and Russian Language School. He was deployed twice more to Afghanistan, but now as a Green Beret. This guest has also worked missions in East Africa, after which he chose to end his military life. While transitioning from the military, my guest and his business partner built an amazing tap room and craft beer experience that is known as Hatchet Brewing. He's here to tell the good, the bad, and the ugly of combat, transition, and brewing the best craft beer in the world. Please welcome Greg Walker. What's going on, my friend? Not much, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the kind words. I want to talk, as we always do, about the beginning. Kirksville, Missouri, a 200-acre farm. You come from a military family. What brought this into you? Because you joined quickly in high school. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of it was Kirksville's a small town. Uh, I was ready to get out. I was tired of waking up before school and mending fence and chasing cattle around. Um, I always liked the leadership aspect. Uh, which is what drove me towards West Point in general. Um, I also had a, my grandfather served in World War II and had a lot of stories from that as a ball turret gunner in a uh, B-24. So I always really looked up to him, admired him uh, immensely. And uh, that was very much a driving factor as well. Anyone else, I know you had a sister growing up, anyone else in the military other than your grandfather? My uncle was in Vietnam. My uh, grandfather was in World War II. And actually, my great-grandfather immigrated from Hamburg, Germany in the early 1900s. Um, and then he was drafted to fight in World War I against Germany, ironically. So um, I heard stories about that growing up as well through the Great Depression, um, all of that. And then my grandpa was drafted. And he always just had an amazing sense of humor about everything. But he had some harrowing tales, to say the least. When you join as a medic, did you plan on making it a career? Did you plan on uh, the military academy and then kind of turning it into a career? And did you ever think special operations? Absolutely not on special operations. Um, I always liked medicine. Uh, I, I did a lot. That's part of the reason I picked chemical engineering. Uh, West Point didn't have a biology program. And so in order to finish a lot of your pre-med requisites, you had to, uh, well, chemical engineering was one of the options to do that. So that was part of the drive there. Uh, my dad was a pharmacist. I've got uh, some relatives who were doctors. And so I also admire and respect that 
that lifestyle, that path, uh, being able to have such a positive impact on people and have this lifelong skill set that allows you to constantly help people. So that was part of, uh, I guess, my mentality behind it. But ultimately, I was always strongly attracted to the leadership aspect. Um, and I, I really did. It, a lot of the stuff that I learned about West Point just resonated with me strongly as far as leading by example um, and really trying to be really reach your utmost potential. Uh, I found that West Point was a challenge. I did fairly well, I would say, in high school. Um, and I was I, I had a lot of good experiences. I ended up being on the uh, school newspaper. I was like the editor of the, the school's newspaper. I played uh, soccer and track and lettered in some sports. Um, and it just seemed like a, a natural fit. So, um, and that in conjunction with the army, like you said, I, I joined uh, the reserves. Uh, there was a small, uh, there was a small reserve unit, just about a 30 minute drive from where I lived. And so going through basic training, it just in, it instilled a lot of positive qualities in me that I saw create a very substantial difference between me and, and I would say the other people I was with in high school. Um, again, being a small town, a lot of people didn't plan on going to college. And so it was, uh, it just opened up a lot of opportunities that I, I couldn't help but be grateful for and, and want to pursue. With your dad being a pharmacist, you come from a, a I don't want to say a well-to-do family, but you come from, um, someone who has been to school, been in that professional world, what was the kind of conversation with your parents about you joining the military? Because, you know, with just your grandfather, uncle, things like that, um, I think that it would be maybe a hard sell to them, especially going to the military academy instead of a college, and then to tell them I want to pursue everything that you did after that. My parents have always been exceptionally supportive in really everything I've done. Um, which I'm exceptionally grateful for, but you're right. It was a tough conversation. Uh, I still remember the recruiter coming to my house. My dad was, I guess, uh, less apprehensive about it, but my mom was not on board. So it, it took some, some conversations with her, I think for her to understand really the intent and my desire to do it. But once I think she understood how passionate I was about it, that she really did become exceptionally supportive. But uh, that was, a challenge to say the least. And my dad has always been somewhat of an inspiration as well. Like he grew up in a, a family of 10 kids, single parent, uh, single parent. His, uh, his father passed away when he was really young. And so that whole side of the family has just been very driven um, and very successful ultimately, which is a, a credit to their own perseverance and, and work ethic. So uh, I think my, my dad, I think he perhaps saw me going down a similar path and just kind of doing my own thing. Uh, which he's always been adamant about doing himself. And I think that that's part of what resonated with him when I, I did come to him and my mom and say, Hey, this is what I want to do. You know, it's, it's interesting though, that you say that with your mom and not being on board, how do you sell it? Let me, let me hear how you sell it to them because I understand the perseverance and stuff. And we're going to talk in, we're going to get into like what your father taught you about that, what your mother taught to you and what you took to West point with you. And for that matter, throughout the military and your career after that. But how do you sell this idea to them? Cause yeah, you're going down your own path, but it's a path that, you know, if they're thinking something else, especially your mother, it's a hard sell. So it was timing is important. This was before we were in Afghanistan, we were in Iraq at the time. Uh, but I still remember it was actually in basic training that uh, the conventional army, 
announced that it was going to be invading in Afghanistan. Um, so my mom was concerned, but um, I will say both of my parents have always been very independently minded. And so that I think is, it's almost like they led me down this path to begin with of pursuing the things that I was interested in, passionate about. And so I feel like that's truly what helped them to understand it is looking at it through that lens, if you will. Now we've had a lot of guys on here that either went to West Point, were instructors at West Point, a, a lot of different things, but we've never really talked about what it means to go to a service academy in college. Because everyone looks at college, I, I didn't go until I was 27 after I got off active duty, but for the, you know, the normal person that's going to go to school and take in that entire college experience, can we talk about what kind of experience it is to go to West Point? Because to me, it seems like it would be completely different, completely foreign, because when you go to college, you're there to learn, but you're under intense scrutiny from day one, I think, until you graduate. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Um, sometimes I still have dreams that I'm uh, only in my junior year and it freaks me out. <laughs> but, um, it's honestly, in so many ways, it's just a wonderful developmental opportunity. Um, I, they talk about the hazing. I even hesitate to use that word, but they do try to put you under a lot of stress to force you to understand how to prioritize things in a very timely manner and, and just execute. And so like, you learn quickly, yeah, you're supposed to know your plebe knowledge, how many days it is till 100th night and all these kind of silly things, memorize a newspaper. But ultimately, it's uh, they're, what they're teaching you is how to prioritize and how to un like and understand the consequences of um, how you are making those decisions, which I truly think has benefited me throughout life, especially after that. Uh, the other, I mean, I, I struggled, I would say, um, academically. Like I still remember graduating. Um, or getting ready to graduate, we were trying to get ABET a cert uh, certification for our chemical engineering program. Um, we, we were a very small program. I think we had 12 people in the program when I graduated. Um, and one of our instructors is part of it to get ABET accredited. You have, your students have to go and uh, take what's called the fundamental engineering exam, which qualifies you to act as a subordinate engineer to a professional engineer. And uh, I still remember going and taking that test and just studying and studying. Um, and I, I passed it, fortunately, but I remember uh, the instructor was reading off the results of who passed it and who didn't. And he called my name and just, he was dumbfounded. He was like, Cadet Walker, you passed? I was like, I guess. And uh, <laughs> it, it, the reason I bring That's it up always is encouraging. It, yeah, it, it shows that uh, perhaps I, uh, they didn't have too high of hopes for me, but um, I always have enjoyed I feel like you build character through adversity and I enjoy doing things that are going to test my, my abilities. Um, even if it does come with a, with failure, you know, uh, it's just part of the part of life, I guess. But, um, like so much of West Point did truly resonate with me. And I still think the press, the most beneficial aspect of that entire experience was the relationships I made. Um, I'm, still phenomenal friends that I reach out to frequently that uh, I'm very grateful for. And frankly, that drive me. Um, there are a lot of guys that are just exceptionally successful, intelligent, selfless. Um, and so often I'm really just trying to live up really to the same standard that they're exhibiting. You know, when you talk about that, I was enlisted when I went in. Um, and, you know, every summer we would get cadets. Uh, that would come from West Point that I think were in their junior going into their senior year. I think that's how it goes, right? 
or is it mm-hmm. senior getting ready? Okay, so junior going into senior year. The Generally, thing that yeah. I noticed with it was some of them seemed very uh, distanced from the military. And what I mean by that is they had kind of been in this bubble at West Point with all officers with um, – they didn't really mesh into the groups. So how did you kind of overcome that and become someone that could talk to the troops, still be command, but be part of the troops because it it paid off during your career. Yeah. Honestly, I think starting off as a private helped going through basic training as an E3 at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. um, It, it gave me a perspective that I guess a lot of people don't have the opportunity to garner. Uh, because when you are enlisted, nobody's expecting you to become an officer. Nobody expects you to look at it through that lens or be in that role in the future. And so I was able to kind of, I don't say see behind the curtain, but just start off with a slightly different perspective. Um, so I, I, my drill sergeants were amazing. They were tough, but I had a lot of respect for them. And I feel like that did, that followed me through my career. I always, I've always had a lot of respect and admiration for senior NCOs and NCOs in general. Um, and that's one of the things that um, I liked to do. I'm probably getting slightly off topic here, but even when I was in third group, I'd go to the groups or, or the uh, our battalion sergeant major and just ask for advice, especially if we're having I have questions about leadership or training, um, why things are the way they are in the battalion, why we're, why are we pushing this narrative or this agenda? Um, it was always exceptionally beneficial. Um, so I think that that kind of started with basic training, and um, just starting from that that perspective in general. It's always interesting to me because I always ask the guys that were enlisted before they were an officer. And I say, did it make you a better officer? And like 90% of the time they say, no, it didn't make them a better officer, but it let them see other things. Do you agree with that? Or do you think it made you a better officer? I think it made me a better officer. If I'm being honest, um, because I think one of the things that I did dislike about my experience at West Point is that you are in uh, very much a bubble, right? Like when your instructor is a, a full colonel, you, you're not going to bump into that guy in the army, especially as a second lieutenant at your first position. And so I think that it makes it easy for people to um, really underestimate that value um, to not respect those positions as you probably should. So um and the other thing that it kind of garners is this, I won't say a uh, lack of respect for NCOs, but I don't think that it really did promote and emphasize how powerful, how important the NCO core really is. I think they speak to it a lot and I think they do the best job that they can, but you're not going to really build that understanding until you put people in an environment to interact with NCOs and see the exceptionally valuable things that they do on a day-to-day basis. And, th- and that's the thing that I always saw. And I mostly saw it, not necessarily with the NCOs, because that was, uh, you know, a timing game with the cadets that came there. What I saw was with the E4s and below. And I understand it's a very different world there. And, and those E4 mafia can come across very gruff to them and stuff and, you know, have been places that they may not have seen yet. But I always thought it was interesting the dynamic between the two. And then you see a guy go from like second lieutenant and, and it's almost like a switch flips when they hit first lieutenant. And I always like that about learning about him. It, it always seems to me like uh, the second lieutenant has something to prove. And then once they hit kind of first lieutenant and they're headed towards captain, they've kind of figured themselves out. They're comfortable. 
and they almost turn into a different officer. Would you agree with that also? I would. I think that's heavily dependent upon the mentorship you're getting from your senior NCOs. Uh, your platoon sergeant when you're a platoon leader, um, your first sergeant when you're maybe an XO. I mean, th- those things are, are exceptionally fundamental in your own development as an officer. Do you think that you going to the military academy changed the trajectory of your career? Let's say you didn't go. Let's say you went to just a normal uh, university. Do you think that would have changed your thoughts on it? Do you think you still would have went special operations later on? Or do you think that it even would have been a thing that you did after you graduated from college? I think it would have been something I did. Uh, I also applied to Mizzou. And uh, that was kind of like my backup option was going to the RTC program there, which they have an excellent RTC program. I had a buddy kind of take that route. But I, I, I think that uh, inevitably, yes, it, it did have an impact. Uh, whether or not I think that it had a substantial impact, I'm not sure. But uh, just being immersed in the military culture, I think, does help you to perform better initially when you do get to the Army. Yeah. And I looked at your career and I thought it was so funny as I start going through everything and I'm reading and I see that you got the chemical engineering degree and then you go infantry branch. And I, the first question off my mind was why didn't you go chemical? Why didn't you go to the engineering uh, branch? Was it something that was assigned to you or did you choose to do that path? I actually, uh, what did I do? Add so I add so, so I did an additional service obligation for infantry. Because, uh, like I said, my grades weren't great. <laughs> it was so can you explain I, what that means? It, yeah. So uh, in going to West Point after your first year, the first day of your second year, you incur at least a five-year obligation to the military. And so uh, that's the minimum once you graduate from the academy. Well, you can, if, if you want to get your choice of branch or, let's say, post or grad school, you can uh, commit to an additional three years for a total of eight years for one of those options. And so I chose to uh, do so with my branch so that I could get infantry. And that's, uh, and I did that. Uh, the analogy I like to use is that it's, it's a lot like, like football, right? Like the army and training, it's all practice, but what the army does in my opinion, or at least at the time, perhaps in slightly less mature than I am now, but it was, Infantry was the basis of what the army did. I was doing army things. Um, and that's really what I wanted to do. I feel like that was the best leadership opportunity I would have had. Um, and especially where we were with the war, that's, that's how I felt like I could most positively contribute. Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about 9-11. Uh, they were in Iraq when you were in the reserve, right? They were, we had already invaded Iraq. Um, let's talk about nine 11 to you. Let's talk about, um, because as you come in, when you graduate, it's 2008, correct? From West point. Correct. So we're seven years into the GWAT nine 11 to you. What does it mean and how does it change or keep your trajectory going in the direction that it's going in? That's a great question. I, I felt as though I wanted to serve. Um, and so that was, kind of the root of my intent, but I don't think that it was, I, I don't think I was ever like really gung ho, um, or exceptionally motivated. Um, I don't f- feel as though I do feel as though it was the right decision, uh, ultimately, but the way I kind of look at it is 
I wanted to support the country. I wanted to support the people I cared about. And I felt like that fell in line with what the nation and the government was trying to do. So I, I think ultimately that was my mentality. I don't think it really changed my path at all. I think that I was kind of already on that path and that that was just part of the experience ultimately. But here's the thing that I love about your story. And when you just answered that, it sets almost a whole new uh, idea on par with your uh, with your career, with your job, however you want to say it, going into West Point. But you said I wasn't really gung-ho about it. But the dichotomy of you saying that and you joining the reserves when you were still in high school and you going infantry and signing on to additional service and you wanting to do the thing for your country – don't you kind of think that is gung-ho? I mean, just because you're not going around ripping and roaring about what you want to do, don't you still think that's a pretty gung-ho thing to do, to give all that time and give of yourself for that many years? I think that's a valid argument. I just didn't feel that way, I guess, is what I'm trying to articulate. Like, uh, I always, I feel like I'm fairly driven, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I'm constantly striving to be the best version of my, myself that I can. And I, I really feel like ultimately, and this is one of the things that I learned uh, in leaving the military, trying to uh, come back to that sense of identity, because so much of it was tied up in what I did in the military, since it was such a, a big part of my life, that I really find now that to make, to put it in the simplest terms possible, I strive to have a positive impact on other people. Like that's really what I find valuable. Um, and that, that was another lesson from the military. It's funny, like, I remember getting out and I was talking to one of my, uh, my commanders because they have to counsel you as you do the, uh, you resign your commission. And uh, he was talking about the retirement and the pay. And it was, it just, if it, I don't want to say it fell on deaf ears, but it, it just didn't resonate with me at all. Like if I was in the military to make money, it, it wouldn't make sense. What I always found valuable is um, really working for people. And I, that's kind of what I've learned from like the last three years of my military career is I will work so much harder for people I respect, admire and care about um, than you could ever pay me. So that's uh, perhaps that answers the question. I'm not sure. No, it, it absolutely does. But it brings up another one and it begs the question of that leadership that you're talking about is starting to get very scarce. And that's whether you're in the military, first responder, law enforcement, that leadership that you're talking about that you'll do is becoming very few and far between. And I think that we're headed in a bad direction in all of those areas because of that leadership. Yeah, I, I, I tend to hesitate to judge um, just because I don't know and I'm not exposed to the things that people in those positions might be. Um, I know the people I had the opportunity to work with have been exceptional. Um, not to name drop, but uh, like Mike Sullivan was my first battalion commander. Phenomenal guy. Um, just downright impressive. Kent Solheim was my battalion commander when I was a BSC commander and when I was uh, my last part uh, of my time on ODA 3331. Just a downright impressive guy himself. Um, I don't know if you've ever been outrun by a guy with one leg, but uh, he did it. So... I wasn't, I wasn't in much better shape at the time, like, uh, but I ran like a 35 minute five mile and he still beat me. <laughs> so, um, just an exceptional guy. And that's just physically, but uh, 
truly selfless leader, driven, caring, um, empathetic. Like these are just people I can't help but want to emulate. And, um, and so I, I really do hesitate to judge because I, I also know they've been put in tough positions. They've made calls that people haven't been happy with. Um, but frankly, just knowing the kind of people they were, uh, I guess I, I kind of, um, look at others in the same manner and just, ex and maybe it is a little ignorant, but I expect them to kind of harbor that same mentality and, and hope that they're doing the best that they possibly can. Yeah. And, and I agree with you to a certain extent, I guess the point that I'm trying to say is that when you talk about those decisions that they've made, that some people may not have agreed with, or they, they didn't like or whatever. I feel that we've gotten to a point where people are passing those decisions to just get it away from them. Whatever decision will keep people away from them, keep people from making judgment on them. And I think that that can be a dangerous thing. And that's what I mean by when you say people made decisions, but at least they made decisions. I feel that we're very quick to pass those things off anymore. And I worry that there never is really someone responsible for it. Um, and so that's why I bring it up to you and, and ask you about that, because I feel like where we're looking, we're, we're down in recruiting, we're down in recruiting in law enforcement. And I just wonder what it is that's keeping people away. Is it those decisions? Is that leadership? Or is it just a life that people don't want anymore? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I really think the only successful leadership style is as selfless as you can be. Um, and if people don't see that, and if people, I mean, you're going to be judged on your your performance in the past. That's probably the best indicator of your performance in the future. But really what people care about is your performance now. And that's based off how much you care. Um, it's tough because in going into the, the business world myself, it's like, well, that's really one of the things we look for. We try to be scrutinizing about the people we're growing into hatchet. Um, and we can teach people to brew. We can teach people to clean fermenters and serve beer, but you can't teach people to care. And that's that might be tough to find. So, um, I don't know. It, it's hard to speak, uh, definitively, uh, unless you have like maybe an example that you have in mind, but it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting situation we're in overall. I, I guess the example I would use is we look around and we see a lot of people, there's been a couple of cases that have popped up with, uh, the Eddie Gallagher case with um, the Marsoc 7, the Marsoc 3. There's been different things where people were kind of sold out. And whenever it came back to getting those decisions up at the top, people said they either weren't involved with it, they didn't do that, and they passed it down to the lowest common denominator. I guess that's what I'm kind of saying. And we're starting to see it more. Maybe that's because it's being on the news more. Maybe it's because we have 24-hour news cycles. Maybe it's been around forever and we just didn't know about it. But that's what I tend to worry about is the guys that are putting it down on the line and guys that you knew and guys you worked with and guys you commanded are, and, I, and I'm speaking from a law enforcement perspective too, the guys that are out there every day are the ones that hold the most liability anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm less familiar. I have I'm vaguely familiar with the examples you presented, but I'm more familiar with the uh, incident in Niger uh, that happened about six months after I got back from my last deployment to Africa. Uh, I do think there's a lot of validity to your point there. I think that it's just a organizational lack of accountability um, to a certain extent. With that said, I, I don't think that that's the rule. I think that's the exception to the rule. I think that those are the things that you hear about because they did go wrong, frankly. Um, 
I, I think the majority of the time it really is, it's good people trying to do the best they possibly can. Um, and again, I, it, maybe it is just my experience. Um, and that was just fortunate, but I've had in my experience overall, it's always been just good people. Um, that's one of the things I really respected about Mike Sullivan is he would straight up say, Hey, I'm the commander. This is on me. Um, there aren't, yeah, it's, it's admirable. Um, especially to, to witness it. And right there, what you said, that's my example right there. How many people do you know that stand up right now and say, it's on me? It's not this person. It's not this person. It's not this person. That I would tell you is a very rare thing to in, in these days and times. Yeah. And I, I think that the military does a much better job of that than other organizations. That was one of the things that was uh, very surprising to me. I worked at a, in a corporate job for about four years after I left the military while trying to get hatchet on its feet. And uh, I remember talking to the CEO of another company that we were working with and he, he straight up told me that, uh, that we had a liability issue, warranty claims, et cetera, for this, this plant we built. Um, and he had this warranty claim and uh, I was in charge of kind of negotiating them and, and working through them from an engineering standpoint. Um, and I was in a private meeting with him in his office and we were talking about a few of these warranty claims he wanted to alleviate because we had shown legally that we were not responsible for them. Um, he agreed with us. He agreed with our legal point. Uh, and it got to the point where he finally just said, you're not going to get out of this warranty claim because I need to be able to say, to point the finger at you guys so that my, so I keep my job. Um, and that, that was something that, uh, was shocking to me. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to your military career a little bit. I want to talk about big army versus how you ended your career. Uh, with your first deployment, you're with first infantry division. You go to Kandahar, Africa, uh, Africa, you go to Kandahar, Afghanistan. Talk to me about what happened there and how big army was on that deployment. And then once we get into special operations, we'll change of how you've done it because that's the perfect place for you. Russian language school. You have every qualifier that you could have. Um, that would be your second time around. So the first time it's a completely different world. So let's talk about how you're there mindset, what you're thinking about and what rank are you as you get over there? So I was a first Lieutenant and it was, um, maybe a little bit of a weird situation. So, uh, we stood up as a unit originally when I went to Fort Riley, we were the, uh, it was the mobile training teams, which, uh, was a small team of experienced soldiers, uh, various, uh, military occupational specialties. And they were training to go, uh, liaise with and partner with small Afghan Iraq it was Iraq units at the time and, um, help them to develop their own capabilities. And so we went through a training cycle where we essentially stood up a uh, battalion combat team. And we, uh, so we had two companies of infantry, two companies of armor within our battalion. Um, going through that process, we weren't slated to deploy originally. And so brigade tasked our mortar platoon to another squadron, a cab squadron for their deployment. And then three months later, we came up on the deployment schedule. And so we had to, within four months, we had to develop a mortar team or a mortar platoon to deploy because uh, it was a, uh, it was a deployment requirement. And so I was an XO at the time and um, our battalion and company commander approached me about uh, standing up this mortar platoon. And so that's, that's, that was my first deployment. We did 
Uh, MLOC, we brought a, a mobile MLOC team out of Fort Benning out to Fort Riley, and we put everybody through all of the training uh, simultaneously. Um, and that, that was another excellent reminder of just how important, like, phenomenal NCOs are, because my platoon sergeant was just exceptional. Um, just an amazing, amazing leader, but he knew his mortar stuff like the back of his hand. Um, and so he did a lot of mentorship with me. So that was the first deployment that was a little stressful, frankly, because uh, everybody's trying to learn this new skill. Well, we're very much under a microscope as far as because it was the first time they said that happened since Vietnam. And so they were worried about whether or not we would be capable of uh, directing indirect fires accurately. Obviously, that's a big concern. If you have a 120 millimeter mortar system, um, being off is a big deal. So um, that was my first introduction to deploying. Uh, I went there for the first six months of deployment. I was a mortar PL. We would do missions with the uh, infantry platoons. We were based out of uh, Cop Terminator, which was renamed to Adam Muhammad, with, uh, which happens to be in the Bandy Timor region. So southern, southwestern Kandahar in Maywand. We saw a lot of poppy, frankly. Like I got pictures of me as far as I, or as far as you can see, it's just poppy plants. But that was as a first lieutenant, to answer your question. And I was promoted about three months into the into that deployment. But it was it was good and it was bad. Like I still remember one of the things that uh, was a, another very developmental mental experience was we did a, uh, a battalion air assault. My company commander at the time had to go back to the main FOB to do this uh, large scale scale air assault operation. And so I was the acting commander uh, for a little while. And uh, I remember we took, uh, well, so we had a strong point not too far from us. And uh, strong point would get in contact at least probably once a day, usually around dinner time. But uh, in order to build white space and try to push back some of this um, enemy movement, we would do patrols out of the strong point. Uh, one platoon would be out there. They would do patrols uh, generally once a day, sometimes twice a day. And to, to paint the picture, there's no running water, electricity is all generators. It's fairly austere. But uh, we had a uh, patrol going out doing a kind of a standard KLE, so key leader engagement, meet with the locals, talk about what's going on, and then see if, if there are any bad guys around, essentially. Uh, and they were walking back, and they stepped on a pressure plate IED, which was very prevalent throughout the area. And that was, uh, that was definitely a challenge, man, because um, uh, in a lot of ways, I felt responsible partially because they went out, they called in fire, uh, and when they did not do a battle damage assessment. So part of the, what the army requires you to do at the time was to go back out there and see if you had had any civilian casualties. Um, they didn't do that. They made that clear via the radio communication that they submitted. Uh, and so we sent them back. Well, I, I told them to go back out there and do a BDA assessment. Um, and one guy came back and stepped on an IED. And so that was one of the things that, you know, you do question, but um, I hope that I made the best decision with the information and the experience I had at the time. But luckily, the command was very supportive. Uh, the guy survived, but yeah, that was uh, that was a challenge to say the least. So let's go on that for a minute because this is like your first. Let's see, you you are you promoted to captain yet? When this happened, or are you still first lieutenant? Yeah, I think I was a captain for about a month at that. Point. Okay. So you're a captain. How long you been out? Uh, probably what four years out of West Point now? Yeah, about three and a half, maybe. Okay, yeah, three or four all right. Years. So you're 26 years old. You're at war. 
and you're in command. I mean, this is you're in charge. When that happens, first off, had you ever seen any other uh, casualties, any wounded in action within your guys uh, up until that point? Not within our guys. Um, no, that, that came later. Uh, we lost a couple guys that I was fairly close to, but that was probably three months after that. Okay. So you know what you're supposed to do, the battle of damage assessment. They tell you they didn't do it. They make it very clear. You tell them they need to go back out there and do this. This happens. First off, how do you take it as a commander? Because I, I was never one. So I got to understand how you feel when this happens. Because you not only have to clear it with yourself, because you got to continue commanding. The mission does not stop just because this happened. But you also have to understand how you can learn from that. So can we talk about what happens to you when that happens and kind of the thought processes that you're going through and how you use those to keep going forward? Initially, when I got the radio call from the platoon leader that they didn't do the battle damage assessment, I was pissed. Like I, I'm the first sergeant to stand next to me when I took the uh, the radio or the report, and I just remember looking at him and I was like, because he knows, like, and I don't want to place any judgment or blame, but um, that frustrated me. He was a little bit of a junior lieutenant at the time. Uh, he was someone that I would talk to in private to try to mentor and and support as much as I could, and frankly, that was. My time as an infantry guy, I was kind of a dick, if I'm being totally honest. I was very strict. I was very uh, almost too logical, if you will. Uh, I was not as empathetic as I probably should have been. And so um, that was not, honestly, that was a, a fault or a failure of my own. To your question, originally I was I was uh, frustrated. And then uh, I, I coached him through. I'm like, hey, man, you got to do this. This is why uh, we have to submit this report because this happened. Like, they know that we dropped the JDAM, so we have to submit this information. It was fairly s straightforward. And then we had the casualty. Uh, we did everything within our power to get uh, Medivac out, which was fairly timely, frankly. Um, less to do with me than the organization. People were just on it. Um, the guys on the ground, uh, they put, so he, he, uh, was a quadruple amputee. They tourniqueted him. They took care of him to the best of their ability. And, and that's, that's why he survived that. And he's just a, a tough, tough guy. Um, but, um, it was, it was tough, but we were able to get through that. And then we had an issue with, um, the platoon leader was getting emotional on the radio after that. And uh, that was another conversation. It's like, hey, man, get off radio comms. Call me on the sat phone. Uh, we had a conversation uh, because that was detrimental to morale at the end of the day. The day, two days after, our battalion commander, sergeant major, chaplain came out. We all went out to the strong point. We saw the guys. Um, they, were, they were struggling emotionally um, and entirely justified, but it was... Uh, it was something we were trying to support them on, um, be empathetic about. Frankly, one of the things I regret was the squad leader. Um, it, he took it really hard. And he was doing the best he could in front of uh, the rest of the guys. But um, I remember having a private conversation with him. And I, I was kind, I was empathetic, but I was also kind of like, hey, man, you've, you're the leader here. You've got to kind of like buck up. you got to like, you got to stay positive and, and try to control yourself, you know, in order to continue to be effective out here because at the end of the day, we're, we're still going to be in contact here when in, in 
in retrospect, I really w- wish I would just hug the man, you know? So let me ask you, a lot of guys talk about that. They, uh, just store stuff away. They don't talk about it. It happens. They deal with it. They store it in a box and sooner or later it, it comes home to roost. And, um, I've heard guys explain it as it's luggage hitting the bed and it opens up and they got to deal with it. Or I've heard it as boxes being dealt with. When you talk about that, not only do you accept the fault as being lieutenant or saying that maybe you could have made a different or however you're describing it, but you're also having to lock it away and you're having to deal with how you dealt with everyone else and how you walked them through it. So when do you work on it? When you put it away in that box and you don't deal with it, when do you deal with it? I mean, I think the straightforward answer to that is you don't, and that's not healthy. Ultimately, I've always been fairly stoic. I think that was also part of my military development, just from the experience I had. Uh, Stoicism in general as a philosophy has always resonated strongly with me um, for whatever reason. But uh, I think the best way to deal with it is with the people you're around, frankly. Um, And that's one of the things that's tough with transition is you find yourself outside of that environment. So you have to really look at other coping mechanisms. But um, to your point, the same thing happened. We had two guys uh, pass away uh, after. So uh, after uh, about six months of that deployment, I went to the three shop um, to go help with the planning. And I was the air assault planner for our battalion. And uh, on one of the air assaults, two guys I knew and trained with for the year and a half prior to our deployment, every day, almost, they, uh, they ended up, uh, dying from gunshot wounds, uh, from a patrol they were on, frankly, nothing they could do, but, uh, that one hit me hard. Uh, not initially, but I, and I, so I was totally stoic, uh, totally controlled emotionally until, uh, I went to their memorial. Uh, and that's kind of where I broke down and honestly, that was probably healthy as opposed to trying to continue to control it. But uh, I don't know. I think that that's something I've tried to get better at over time. But uh, And it's not the Army's fault, but the Army, I don't think at the time, was putting a lot of um, emphasis on as far as uh, they they'd speak to mental resiliency and that type of thing. But on the flip side, it's uh, mental health issues are also, they have a strong stigma. It's a very strong negative stigma. To give you a slight example of perhaps what I'm talking about is like, I remember we redeployed from that deployment. We were going through all of our redeployment stuff. They were asking us uh, physical stuff and mental stuff, that type of thing. And I remember doing the, you have to do a uh, counseling with a therapist on the way out. And I remember uh, walking into a room, they were on a, a video chat, much like this. And she had a post-it note over her screen. And I waited there for 15 minutes before she was ready to see me. And she saw me. She just asked me a bunch of questions very coldly. Have you seen anybody die? Did you lose anybody that you knew? Et cetera, et cetera. And it was just so off-putting that I, I just said no to everything. Not the right answer, frankly, but perhaps an example of the challenge the military has in trying to promote mental health awareness and um, just resiliency in general. So let me ask you one more thing about this. When you say you go to the memorial and you break down, I want to know honestly 
Were you worried about, because you mentioned you kind of prefaced the whole thing by saying you were kind of a dick in your infantry days, uh, very much straightforward about the rules and things like that. Were you worried about being seen as a human or weak or what was it that you were so worried about when you know now that you look back on it, that was the right thing to do? It wasn't a worry. I think a lot of it was immaturity and a lack of experience. Um, I think that it was... I wasn't worried about the perception as much as I was constantly trying to be the best leader I felt like I could be. Part of that is trying to be a very stable stable figure for other people. Uh, a good example. I think that was kind of the driving mentality there. Um, I don't think that it was necessarily like unethical or immoral. Um, definitely not malicious, but it wasn't, it wasn't healthy, at least for me, you know. When you're not around anyone, does it show its face at all to you? And, and the reason I'm asking you, because I always ask the guys as they go throughout their career, how it builds or how it changes. Uh, when you're alone, when, when you think about it on your own, does it affect you uh, and just no one else is seeing it? Or are you pretty good? Can you handle it pretty good on your own? I go through cycles, to be totally honest. Um, I really struggled leaving the military because um, I had... I like uh, survivor guilt. So like I, I, it, it was one of the things that I just struggled with. Uh, I didn't have it as much in the military because I felt like I was constantly contributing. So I felt like I was there with everyone. And that was the, perhaps the advantage of being in special operations and infantry. When you're like actively contributing, you know that you're at least as, at, as at much risk as everyone else. Um, for me at the time, it was easier to, to deal with where, I am now, it's, I really, and in regard to the examples we've discussed, I really just hope that I'm living my life in a way that um, would honor the guys that I've, I've worked with. And, and that's one of the things, to be totally honest, you were asking for pictures for this. Um, I hadn't gone through those pictures in eight years, man. It's something that I, I found out, especially leaving the military, that was just very unhealthy for me. I hated seeing how young some of those guys are. And I look in the mirror, man, I just get older. You know what I mean? It's... Yeah, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm doing a poor job of, of explaining it, but you're you're um, actually not. You're doing a very good job of it, and I. But I think this is the whole point of this. There's a lot of guys that won't talk about this kind of stuff. Won't talk about not looking at the pictures. Now, as you say it, and you look through those pictures, can we talk about like how you felt going through the pictures to send to me and stuff? Because you sent me some deeply personal pictures that that we're gonna you know, uh, talk about on the website and stuff like that. But how are you feeling going through it? Because I love that example, how young they look and you just keep getting older and older. Yeah, it, it's tough, man, because um, I'm not sure I want to name names, but uh, one of the guys I'm thinking of, he was just, uh, he was in, uh, when I was a platoon leader, when I was a mechanized infantry platoon leader, he was uh, one of the team leaders with us. And he was just a phenomenal guy. He was in great shape. He was constantly going above and beyond what was expected of him, which frankly is probably part of the reason he passed away in, in the manner that he did. He was, uh, he was the, he was a leading a patrol. He was in front. Um, and there was a PKM that opened up on him and the guy next to him, which happened to be the forward observer, uh, who, when I was at the XO, uh, he was in my, my platoon then. And, uh, he took a round just above his plate. Um, which there wasn't much that anyone could do about that. 
And then the guy next to him took it between his side plate and his front plate. And so they, uh, they passed away on the aircraft, uh, during the medevac. How does it make me feel it, sad? Ultimately, um, they're just great people. Nah, you know, they'll, they'll never have the opportunity to be married or have a family or, you know, have a normal life. And that's, what's interesting to me also about your story is that how you talk about this, that they'll never be able to do that. But yet you talk over and over about how you just wanted to do your part, how you just wanted to give back to the cause for America, for the people here, you put yourself in the same situation. So I'm trying to understand when you talk about that and you talk about, um, they'll never have the chance to do this. You had the possibility of that too, very much so. And so I've, I, I would think that some of that goes into how you think about it now that you did your, you did the best that you could possibly do. Would you agree with that? I, I think, I mean, I, I did with everything I knew at the time with the experience I had at the time, maybe there was something I could have done differently if I had, if I'd had the perspective I do now or had subsequent to those experiences. But I, I do feel pretty confident and maybe that's the the solace. Maybe that's, you know, kind of why I feel like, uh, or helped me to deal with it is that I, I do feel confidently that I did everything I could. And that's a question you ask yourself as a leader. Like when you lose guys in combat, you're like, did we do everything we could to train for this? Um, that's why it's, it's so important and why the military does put so much emphasis on doing realistic training, um, which I think is, is valid and excellent. But some of it's just, I guess, life perhaps. As vague as that is. I don't think it's vague. Uh, the The thing to that is, do you think that you can ever be prepared going back to being second lieutenant, first lieutenant and being dropped into that situation? Is there anything that can be done now that you look back on it with like 2020 vision that can be done that will prepare you? Because I don't really feel until you've been in it. And I'm speaking from a law enforcement perspective because I was never in combat. But you can never understand it until you've been a part of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how it's possible to truly be prepared, right? It's like, how are you? How do you prepare for your a parent passing away? Uh, I know when my grandfather passed, it it was uh, it was tough. I actually happened to be deployed at the time, and that was it. Kind of exacerbated the issue. But what was so nice is I, I happened to be on three one at the time, and everyone was exceptionally supportive. Nobody cared that I was an officer. I was a member of the team. And that's, that's what carried me through that experience. But to your point, I, I don't know if that's something that you can truly prepare for. I think that that's other than just trying to be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. I don't think that that's something that you can really train for. And the example that I give is, you know, they say, well, when this happens to you, what are you going to do? And, and they, what if you, and they run you through scenarios and they do the same thing in the military, run you through scenarios but I think that people really don't know that. I think they think they know what they'll do, but I think people really don't know what they'll do until the shit hits the fan. I totally agree with you. I remember the first time I got into contact, um, it was surreal, right? Like when bullets were impacting at my feet and I, I would hear cracks and it, it was, I'd always heard about it, but in like I remember ranger school, you train for it all the time, but it was surreal when it, it happens to you in real life, so to speak. Um, and everybody just re reacts to it differently. Uh, I know there was a, a guy on our mortar team, uh, he froze and he was, 
he wasn't behind cover. And so I remember moving over to him and like, he was just, he was just, um, perhaps in shock is be the best way to put it, but he, he just wasn't reacting. And so like, I shook him and I cussed him out. <laughs> Probably not the best way to deal with it, but, um, got his attention, got him kind of like in the moment again, and, and things were fine from there, but it wasn't cowardice. It was just it, people you're, you're right to your point. People just, they react differently. And some it's a lot of times that's hard to predict. And it, it happens after too. Like once you get back to the cop or the fob or your safer area, so to speak, I mean, some guys seem totally fine, but they take it out in the gym. Some guys, well, frankly, not on deployment, but some guys drink to deal with those things. Um, everybody kind of has their own coping mechanism. Some guys cry to be totally honest. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. I don't see it as weakness. I don't see it as, uh, inappropriate. It's just everybody kind of has their own way of coping with those high stress situations. We talk a lot about high allostatic load. Uh, do you agree in that theory? Uh, I don't know how familiar I am with it, frankly. So what it is, is it's saying that with this high allostatic load, with this constant stressful situation, these constant life or death that it builds on you after a while. And you say some guys hit the gym, some guys cry, some guys deal with it with drinking and pills. Do you believe that you can ever kind of shed that away as you're going through it? Or do you think that it's always going to be a point where it builds? Ultimately, it's something that you're going to have to work through. For example, I mentioned my grandfather passing away and um, I wasn't really emotional about it initially. But I, I just went to the gym and I was lifting things as heavy as I possibly could. Um, and that, that's what helped me to process all of that. I feel like if you can find healthy ways to cope with those things, in many ways it can be a benefit, right? I, I think it's the, that's how adversity does build character. If you're able to utilize those situations, that high allostatic load, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. In a manner that, that actually positively contributes to your own development, I think that that's probably the best you can hope for. But this isn't unique to the military. And I, I still don't think that my experiences have been exceptional overall. Uh, there are so many guys that you even had on the show that I think put me to shame in, in many ways. But um, even people outside of the military have things that they're going to deal with. I think that it's ultimately, I, I think that that's the goal is to find a way to deal with, deal with those things and cope with them in a healthy way. And I agree with you. And, and I look at people like when you talk about other people that have been on the show, a guy, you know, Chuck Ritter. I mean, it's, it's crazy to me to hear, you know, when they do the things they do, they write or they do art therapy or they do music therapy, not saying he does all three of those, but there, there are therapies to get through it. I, I want to understand though, the difference when you see the first deployment, as you saw it, being that leader, having some I don't want to say that you second guessed yourself, but having some thoughts about decisions that you made, you come back and you decide to go to assessment selection. What was it that transferred you over from being a big army guy into this? And what was it that, that kind of called you that you thought would be different? Cause you, you've got to know if you're going back over into special operations, you're going to go back into combat for sure. Yeah. I, I wanted that experience. What I, I just wanted it on my own terms and in the way that I felt was the best fit for me. I always liked being on small teams. I liked knowing everyone. I liked building what I would call genuine and authentic relationships. And, and that was really what was, I guess, so what's the word I'm looking for. It, it was just what I, 
what resonates so strongly with me. That's why I wanted to go into special operations. I knew I was going to be on a, a team of 12 guys. I also knew that I was going to be a team leader for probably about two years. Um, that's a decent amount of time when just about every other role I'd had was a year long, you know? So I also like being, I don't say at the front of it, but I, I like being, I like feeling like I'm positively contributing. Like I'm, I'm part of uh, the solution, if you will. And that's, I felt like that was special operations. I also liked that um, it isn't just the what you think of when you think of like combat. Like SF does a lot of different stuff, and I, I like that dynamic. I like that hey, you're you're building relationships with the partner force. I like that hey, you got to know your airborne operations stuff. It's it's much more broad, uh, which I, I did really like. When you go into it, what's your first eye opening experience as you come to it? You say that it's going to be completely different, but as you go back into combat, you go to back to Afghanistan. Any thoughts right off the bat as you come into it, as you're doing this new kind of job, is there any difference to you? Is anything standing out? And are you thinking I made the right decision, the wrong decision, or this is right where you needed to be? Definitely the latter. Um, I love being in third group. I loved being in SF. Um, I loved the mentality. It was very outcomes focused. They believed in performance and they were less concerned about um, necessarily the strict procedure or process by which you get there. So I really enjoyed that. My So my second deployment, I was on Bagram Airfield the whole time. I was a uh, battle captain. So I was trying to help manage operations and uh, track what was going on. Uh, I liked being involved in that because I felt like I was supporting the teams that were out there on that deployment. Even if it is something as simple as just a, our CONAP process, right? Like, so you do your mission plan and it has to go through uh, somewhat of an administrative process to get approved and uh, double checked and all of that uh, coordinated, et cetera. So I liked being a part of that because I felt like I was trying to help the guys that were trying to go out and do their job to do it without, well, with the least amount of BS as possible. That's probably the best way to put it. With the other jobs that they do, you mentioned it, that, that they're teaching, that they're partnering with forces. They're doing, uh, I think, the village operations at the time um, were the village stability operations. What about that kind of the job did you like? And it's so different from, or it, maybe it's not so different from the combat experience. What was it about it that you liked? I liked that it was much more dynamic uh, and much more like uh, outcomes focused, kind of like I was saying. So like, with SF, we were a mobility group, so we would do mobility training. So how to recover vehicles, how to drive in off-road terrain with your government vehicles and with non-government vehicles. You learned how to use a radio, right? Do all of that yourself. Uh, we would cross-train, and so I was never as good as our communications guy, frankly. But uh, my goal was always to be able to support myself and do do the fill on the radio myself and keep carry my own batteries. I like that about SF. It was Everyone is very driven in that way, and everybody tends to be very competent at their job uh, and in a lot of ways that technically aren't their job. Uh, I, I really liked that. I saw a lot of value in that. But yeah, it, you're, it just exposes so much, whether it's um, you know how to talk to people, how to build relationships, how to do, how to recover a vehicle. Then there's the DA stuff that everybody sees like, hey, you're going to know how to use your pistol. You're going you're gonna to go through mount operations, so clearing buildings and that type of thing. You're going to know how to do halves and gaffs, so helicopter assaults, ground assaults. You're going to learn how to do all the planning for that. It was just much more encompassing and you had a lot more autonomy. And perhaps that was the word I was looking for earlier. Um, I, I've always liked the autonomy. 
Uh, I feel like that's where I, I thrive is when I feel like, you know, it is on me and I need to do the absolute best I possibly can, um, not necessarily for myself, but for the, the people around me that I hear about. Well, I want to talk to you about that. When you say that, you know, you want to be proficient, you want to be able to, to support the people around you. When you come from big army into special operations, like you said, you're dealing with very competent guys. It's a whole new level of competition. Would you agree? Even if it's not stated outright, it's a very stringent and very tough level of competition. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's healthy though. Is it, is it very competitive? Yeah, absolutely. But it isn't competitive in a cutthroat way or a malicious way. And that's one of the things I loved. Like when we were in Africa, we spent the last month working tirelessly on what we would call a transition plan. So we were setting up all the documents. We were trying to document all the relationships we had and all the missions we had planned for this other team. So they could just come in and start with no, no loss of time or momentum. Um, and that's not, that wasn't unique to our experience that that was SF. And I know conventional army tries to do the same thing and they do, uh, I'm not trying to detract from that, but I just loved that mentality where, yeah, is it competitive? Absolutely. But it's a lot like uh, I had a team sergeant that used to say, like you go to the gym, it's always a competitive environment in there, but the only person you should really be competing with is the guy you walked in as. So as long as you're getting better every day, as long as your team is getting better every day, um, as long as you're positively contributing to the organization as a whole and the teams around you, that's truly the goal. So I, I really did like that aspect of it. So with all these trips to Afghanistan, you go to uh, Eastern Africa. Can we talk a little bit about that? I know we can't go into real detail about that, but what was it about after, you know, this would be what your fourth deployment when you go to East Africa? This would be my third. Yeah. So I did okay. two trips to Afghanistan and then the okay. one to Africa. Okay. So your third deployment in, uh, captain still at the time, correct? Or are you a major at the time? No, I was a captain. Yeah. Okay. So you're a captain at the time. You have all this experience. You have all this worldly experience behind you too. Not just experience as an operator, as a, a commander, a battle captain, all these different things. You also have all these schools. You have Russian language. You went to West Point. You have a trajectory that is unstoppable. I, you would agree with that, correct, before we go any further? I think it's a bold statement, personally. I, I mean, so much of what I did was the same as anybody else in the Q course. You know, like, that's, like language is part of the Q course, SEER school, part of the Q course. I had some other military schools, which helped, but I, I was fortunate to be on such a phenomenal team that I, I could have been a horrible detachment commander and probably still done just fine. If that makes any sense. No, no. And it does. And I, I understand what you mean when you say that, what I'm trying to say is that you did everything right. You went to West point, you did all the schools, you went to selection, you did everything that you were supposed to. You agree that your, your career could have ended up as you as, as a high rank as you could possibly get to. That's what I'm asking you. Yeah, maybe. Um, I do think it gets probably a little political after a certain period of time. But uh, at the time, during the uh, a wartime army, uh, it did sort of transition in 2015, I would say, to more of a garrison-focused army as we got out of OEF uh, and transitioned to the Resolute Support Mission. But yeah, I, I mean, promotions at that point, as long as... The army is, is kind of funny. It's like, it, it's hard to stand out and do a very, very, very good job, but it's also hard to stand out and do a very bad job. So I think that they're... It, it, I don't know. Uh, as far as promotion, that was never something I was really concerned about. Um, I felt like as long as I just kept doing the best I could, 
everything would kind of work out the way that it was supposed to. And I, I say all that to say this, it's not necessarily that, that, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to say you were the greatest commander or anything like that. I say all that to say this, it comes pretty abruptly. You resign your commission and you leave the military. Is that a correct statement in saying that? I don't know how abrupt it was. I, so where I was, I, I got, uh, I was on a team for two and a half years, didn't want to leave. Um, and I remember, uh, I was selected to be the battalion support company commander, which is, it's a developmental position. So that was, uh, I was flattering, frankly, but I just remember uh, a lot of it was UCMJ. A lot of it was dealing with soldier issues. And it's like, I, I wanted to focus on what I thought, you know, special operations did. And I felt like that kind of pulled me away from it. I also felt like uh, looking to the future, I'd have had to go on to the uh, ILE, which is, uh, for me, it would have been the Command and General Staff College in Kansas. That was at least a year. Uh, and then the way SF works is you have to apply to come back. So if you want to be a, an operational company commander, an AOB commander, uh, you go through a process of saying, hey, I want to come back. And then group commanders and battalion commanders will get together and they'll pick the guys that come back. And there's only so many like positions for that. So looking at that and saying, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to be an AOB commander. I wanted to be, but I, and there's probably a good possibility that I would have been, but looking at that and then being an AOB commander for maybe a year and then the next, what's the next job I would want? Probably battalion command. Well, it's going to take me another five or six years after AOB command to do that. And all that other time is staff. And so I, I just felt like, Hey, if, I just asked myself what I really wanted to learn. Um, and I did not have like the, I've been in the army since I was 17. And so that's really all I knew. Um, so I, I was kind of looking for a different challenge. Uh, that's why I, I got out. That's why I, I did go into corporate America. I, I wanted that experience. That's why I got the, the MBA to try to help me to understand kind of how things work outside of the military. But uh, that was more the impetus for that decision. That and to the point of autonomy that we discussed earlier, that that was probably the most uh, succinct way of putting it is I was looking for my own autonomy and I wanted to, I was looking for the next challenge. Ultimately. The first question that I have that, that comes to mind is, did you ever, or do you ever look back and think, man, I would have wish I would have made a different decision there. I mean, I think it's healthy to, to reflect on that. Um, I don't wish that I was still in the army. Let's say I did. It's not the same army. We're not in the same situation. You know, I, I, I stayed fairly well tied in with my friends that, that did stay in and I admire them for doing it because the guys, the majority of the guys that I know are going to do a phenomenal job and they're going to be the kind of leaders that, you know, I looked up to when we were all younger captains. I just saw a different path for myself ultimately. And I, I don't regret leaving. I feel like that was just kind of what the best decision was for me. The second question to that would be, there's no really regrets to it. Are you scared when you're leaving? Because like you said, I mean, that was out of your own words. You'd been in the military since you were 17 years old. You'd never seen anything else. Um, is it scary walking away? It's intimidating. It absolutely is. I hesitate to, to use the phrase safety net, but like I, I, was, I understood the culture. I understood the military. It was, I was comfortable there. Uh, so it was uncomfortable and intimidating leaving the military into the corporate world. Uh, I still remember showing up to my first job as a uh, deputy project manager for an engineering technology company. And like what was constantly running through my head was I can't cuss. <laughs> like it was because I was used to cussing constantly. It was just kind of the culture. 
but obviously that's not appropriate in that different environment. So uh, it was it was definitely a challenge, but I was fortunate to the, the company I work for, uh, Midrex, phenomenal company, excellent leadership. In so many ways, like they actually mimicked the, the military. Like I remember when we hit COVID, they minimized layoffs. They did the best they could to take care of everyone. Um, CEO is an exceptionally intelligent and driven guy. COO is a, another excellent guy. I mean, in so many ways, I feel just very fortunate and lucky that you know I ended up there as opposed to some of the other horror stories I've heard from buddies that have gotten out and worked for different you know different companies. Let's talk about the good and the bad of transitioning. When you look at it, what was good to you and what was bad? And then let's talk about if there were not bad, but if there were difficulties that you wondered, can I get around these? Am I going to be able to fix this and continue on? Because I've talked to a lot of guys on the show. I talked to someone last week that said they got out. They didn't think they could keep up with the pace. They got out. And then after they had gotten out, they didn't quite fit in where they were, you know, what they were doing and where they were working. And then they started thinking, well, maybe I could go back in or maybe I could be a contractor. Was that ever a problem for you? And let's talk about the good and the bad. Um, I mean, the contractor thing, I think, is is an interesting path. I just never really pursued it. I liked so I, I did like chemical engineering, even though I was never very good at it. <laughs> so. I, I did enjoy the opportunity to be involved in that. Um, and that really is what Midrex does. Um, they own a proprietary process for refining iron ore. And so that was cool. I, I liked being able to talk about some engineering concepts. I, I also felt like it was a good fit for me because I was in a you know a lower level leadership position, but I was managing a team of roughly 10 guys that uh, were all exceptionally good in their own engineering disciplines. But my job was just try to keep everything together and keep projects on time and on budget. And so it, there were a lot of similarities between that and what I was doing in the military. And so in that regard, I was pretty fortunate too, I would say. Uh, the challenges are cultural. That's where I really started to struggle with like the survivor guilt. Uh, there are a couple of buddies of mine that uh, I went through the Q course with uh, and then did some training with when I was uh, in third group that passed away. And it hit me a lot harder than it it would have. And that was one of the challenges I had. Fortunately, I had talked to uh, my cousin, he ended up going through buds. And so I've got a couple buddies that uh, were on SEAL team two, just through him. And uh, I was talking to another guy, he got out about a year before I did uh, from the SEAL teams. And so I, I talked to him about it. And he had some wise advice. It was just you need to stay involved. You're going to leave, but you need to maintain the relationships you need to continue to give back as much as you can. Um, and I really do think that's been the impetus behind a lot of what we do at Hatchet. I do love the fact that I go to work and a lot of times I'll bump into guys that are still in group that I used to work with. I like, for example, tomorrow night, we're doing a uh, charity event for a guy. I didn't know him in the military, but he was in first battalion. I'm pretty sure. Uh, he was in third group and then moved on to the operations or OSW. So the special for warfare uh, unit. And so it's cool to feel like I can still contribute at least positively in that regard, but that that's absolutely a challenge that I'd be remiss not to mention. Did you feel like you fit in when you got out? In many ways, yes, but in a lot of ways, no. I don't know. I don't know if it's a good or bad thing, but I tend to be fairly driven. Um, that's part of the reason I think that I, like with romantic relationships, that I struggle with those because a lot of the feedback I get is, um, 
I work too much, which is a, a simple way of saying that I'm, I'm too focused on like performance <laughs> and, and that Wait type a minute. of thing. How you said that the feedback that you get, do you, do you have like a debriefing session at the end of the relationship? Or like when you had to meet with the commander, when you were resigning your commission, I, I want to know how you get the feedback on these first off and then let's get into it. Well, I'm, I'm definitely uh, articulating it differently than it may have been put to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. That and I tend to be fairly stoic that sometimes is not a good fit. So, so to your question, yeah, there was some things it, one of the things I did like about engineering is, um, people tend, did tend to think very similar to me as far as like in a very logical, transparent manner, but in some ways I, I did feel kind of isolated. And some of that was just like a lack of understanding. Like I still remember after COVID hit, we were working remotely a lot and I remember doing a, like a meeting over teams. And uh, one of the guys I'd been working with for like three years at this point, he asked if I could stay on the call afterwards. And so I did. And so he started asking me about uh, guns and he started by asking me if I'd shot a pistol before. And like in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, I was on a DA team for two and a half years. Like by the time I got done, um, I had a my small point of pride. I had uh, the fastest reload time on the team. And that was just because my team sergeant would run me through dry fire drills and dry fire drills. It was just surprising because it, to me, it highlighted kind of like that lack of understanding because he, he knew I was in the military. He knew I was a, a green beret, but he, he didn't understand. It was like, yeah, I don't know. I've definitely shot a pistol a few times, you know, and that is a little, it, it, it does feel a little isolating, right? It, um, it's a little lonely. It's, it's funny to me when you say, cause you've said it uh, quite a few times that you're stoic, that you're, you're, can I use the word cold? Is that a good way to describe? I think it's accurate. Yeah. Okay. So you're stoic, you're cold, however you want to put it. But then I know you from all the times we've talked on the phone. I know you through Chuck. Uh, I know what you do at the brewery and the tap room. And none of that seems cold to me. None of that seems stoic to me. You constantly surround yourself with family, with people, with dogs, with trivia night and all these different things you got to describe how that comes out because those are two completely different worlds ones that you're saying right now and ones that i've seen since i've talked to you i don't know maybe it requires more introspection um that's just a lot of the feedback i've gotten uh from other people i think that that has changed a little bit i went through a very dark time about two years ago now where i have tried to be better about my own self-awareness, uh, introspection, and frankly, like mental uh, resiliency and coping methods. As far as being cold, I do tend to think about things very logically. I, I do tend to be very analytical. I think that's part of the reason I do like the business piece. Um, and really what I do at Hatchet is more business management than anything else. But I, I notice it because I can be I think that I can be difficult to communicate with from time to time because I can come across as very just either straightforward, transparent, cold, uh, stoic, however you really want to put it. And I think that a lot of the times that's tough for people because they'll expect an emotional reaction and, and some, like a lot of the time I just won't naturally give it, if that makes sense. But I, but I think the contradiction there is you've said that you think about things after they're over. And so when you talk about that, the dark times, because I, I, I want to talk about that. And the reason I want to talk about that is because I know you started working on the, the brewery, the tap room, 
uh, kind of the recipes in 2017, right? Um, yeah. So we founded the company in 2017. I was actually still in the military at the time, uh, but it took us about two years to find a location. Um, by the time everything was ready to open the doors, it was November of 2019. So here's where I'm getting with this. As I'm reading through your story, it didn't stick out to me until I read about Apocalypse Amber. So 2017, you form the company, you start getting everything together. 2019, you find the spot, you move in and motherfucking 2020 hits. And there was no year like that has ever been in the history of history. Yeah. I timed that all of that stuff. You think logically and fucking COVID comes in and shuts everything down and you made apocalypse Amber, but then you're kind of done for a while. Is that where the dark times start? Actually, they started later than that. Maybe they did start then perniciously and subtly, but I, and a lot of this is a testament to my business partner. He was managing all day to day really at the time. Cause I was still working full time, um, two hours away in Charlotte, but we didn't fire anybody. We had two people volunteer to leave just so that we could continue to pay people. Uh, but yeah, we were shut down for two months. Um, and after it's funny, like we had planned, Oh, we'll get a canning machine or a crawler machine, you know, after we start making some money and so many things happened where it was like, we just need, we just need to survive ultimately. And so that's really what we were striving to do, but it took us, I think over a year to really recover from that. Um, and maybe in some ways there's an argument that we never have. I really, I don't know. It's hard to say, but yeah, that was definitely a challenge. Um, with that said, I think the only thing you can do is do what you believe is the right thing. Right. And that's where we're like, Hey, we're not firing anybody. Uh, we'll do whatever we have to do. Uh, if, if it's Mike, my business partner and I, if it's us not taking salaries and so be it, you know, we really just wanted to take care of the people we were with and try to keep the company moving forward as best we possibly could. So if that's not the times, then what brings it on then? Because you seem once again, like you said, very straightforward, very level headed about it. What possibly brings on the dark times? Simply put, I just wasn't taking care of myself. So I, uh, I was working for this company. I was working about 60 hours a week doing that. And I was trying to do a lot of the business management stuff for Hatchet, you know, at night and on the weekends. Being two hours away, I was driving um, to Hatchet every weekend, uh, sleeping on the couch in the office for about the first year. And then, uh, then working there all weekend and then going back to work on Monday for uh, my day job, so to speak. So I wasn't working out. I wasn't doing things for myself. Uh, and it, it, it's snowballed. We'll say like it, it, uh, definitely built over time, uh, that in conjunction with ending a, a six year relationship with, you know, a woman I loved and just couldn't, it, it didn't work. Ultimately it just didn't fit. That, uh, was tough to deal with. We already talked about some of the like survivor yield stuff, which was uh, exacerbated by me leaving the military, having some buddies pass away. Yeah, so I just got to an exceptionally dark place, man. I told you I, I do tend to be fairly stoic, but I was I could not regulate. It got to the point where I just couldn't regulate my emotions. Uh, I was crying a lot of the time, and there wasn't great justification for it, frankly. Now we can we can go as deep into this as you want. If you don't feel comfortable, tell me. But but these are the things that that I always want to talk about because these are the things that are the most fascinating. Everything that you've seen in life, everything that you've done, that you've driven through. You make it through COVID, you build this company from the absolute ground up. And then you say you get to this 
and a lot of these things affect you, but then you start, um, like you said, crying and, and trying to deal with things. I got to understand how one, how you kind of get there to where, you know, okay, something's wrong. Something's out of place because I feel like it would be quickly for you. But number two, how do you tell yourself, okay, you got to shut up and move on. And you go back to that stoic dickhead self to yourself and go, all right, we got to fix ourselves, or everything's going to crash. For me, it was, uh, I had a moment of clarity. So, um, to continue to paint the picture into that six year relationship, I really struggled with that struggled with the survivor guilt piece, still trying to perform at work, still trying to keep hatchet alive because of everything that happened. And I, I think this is natural in any real relationship, but, uh, my business partner and I, we don't always see things. eye to eye. phenomenal guy, um, exceptionally competent, but there's a lot of tension there trying to keep a business alive and make good decisions from a financial standpoint and a business management standpoint, working a lot, 60 hours a week, 20 hours on the weekend, at least with hatchet. And then at night trying to do, you know, all the other things that we need to do. And then like also with COVID, we were quarantined for a while. Uh, I was in Mecklenburg County in Charlotte and the whole county was quarantined. So you weren't allowed to leave other than you're allowed to leave your, your place for like an hour. I mean, it wasn't super well enforced, but, but at the time I was living in like a 600 square foot condo in, in Charlotte. And so I just got into an exceptionally dark place. And one night I like to play guitar. It tends to be a fairly cathartic practice for me. Crying, playing guitar, uh, and actually we talked about, uh, like pistol drills. I usually keep a pistol on my desk just to do dry fire and, and stay proficient with that. And I just remember getting to such a dark place that I remember picking up my pistol, putting it to my head and having just this moment of clarity and then breaking it down and like putting it in different parts of the house. And the next day I, I called my, my parents and kind of explained the situation, not in that much detail, frankly, my mom quit her job. Uh, and she and my aunt came out that following week, ended up going to the hospital, uh, going to the lab and found out I had a pretty severe testosterone deficiency, uh, which exacerbated the issue. And so that was one of the pivotal moments for me in realizing like, Hey, this is what happens when you don't take care of yourself. And ultimately it was my fault. Like I, I let myself get to that point. And that's another thing that's a tough realization. It's like, I'm super grateful for the experiences I had in the military because they did give me so many tools to avoid that. They may not have explained the why behind it, but like working out has always been a very healthy coping mechanism for me. Being around people that have had shared experiences and that you care about is exceptionally healthy. Uh, when you deprive yourself of all those things, it is easy to get into an exceptionally unhealthy place. And that was really the lesson there. So. That was kind of my pivotal moment to answer your question. How long does it take you to come out of that hole? Cause nothing's stopping. You still got to work. You still got to run hatchet. So yeah. And I kept working to be totally honest, uh, kept doing the hatchet thing. But what I ended up doing was I went, uh, we were all working remotely at the time, fully remotely, uh, because we are still doing the, the quarantine thing. I went home. I'm really close with like my cousin uh, and a lot of my family in St. Louis. And so I went back for about a month and uh, just stayed with them. Worked out every day, ate healthy, worked uh, as much as I could. And it was through, and and frankly, like focusing on the testosterone deficiency. Um, I ended up taking 
Clomid, which is a, I think it's actually an estrogen uh, blocker, but that helped me to, we'll say, correct that, that deficiency. All of that was huge, um, especially, you know, doing it all at the same time. And so I feel like I, so, and I actually to give you some metrics, like I, when I was, uh, when I hit that darkest point within 30 days, I had lost over 30 pounds. Um, I couldn't sleep. Like it was just, uh, it was something I couldn't ignore, you know, ultimately very grateful for the, I mean, it's very developmental. Um, I feel like I, I learned a lot from that. It took me a solid two months, I would say to kind of get back into a really healthy state where I did feel at least somewhat I get in the, the word I kept using at the time was I just felt totally emasculated. Um, which is always, it was such a foreign feeling for me. It was exceptionally intimidating because I've always, I've always liked working out. I've always been a fairly masculine guy, I guess, but it, yeah, to answer your question, it took me probably about two months after that. Did anyone around you notice what was going on or was everyone just like, man, he, he's, you know, no, I, I, I kind of isolated myself. So I never gave anyone the opportunity. And that's an, another lesson for me. It's like, there were so many guys I could have just picked up the phone and called. Um, and I started to, you know, after I realized the, like how bad of a position I was in, but I also knew it was my own fault. And that was, it, it's hard to reconcile that reaching out to close friends um, and just putting a lot of effort and trying to take care of myself was what pulled me out of that. That and my, ultimately my family was exceptionally supportive. So let me ask you, you used the word emasculated. You felt completely emasculated. How does that come about? Because like you said, you've done some pretty manly things in your life. You've always been a, kind of a masculine guy, worked out, played sports, were in combat, was a Green Beret. Was there like an episode or was there something that happened that, that set that emotion? No, and I think that was part of what was um, so astounding for me was that it was very pernicious. It was exceptionally subtle. I didn't, it was an accumulation of very small things over a long period of time um, to the point where I didn't even realize it. It's where it was that experience that I had. It was something I couldn't ignore. It was something that was just so profound and obvious at that point that I knew that, you know, what I was doing was not healthy. So as you come back from the, the two, two month thing and you, you get refocused, you know what you need to do in life. We got to talk about this amazing company. You got the best craft beer in the world, man. And, and your company, I've told you on numerous occasions, it's fucking awesome. Your can artwork, the brewery itself, everything you do. Let's talk about it, man. Cause this is like the high point of your life and, and everything you did, man, you were a green beret, but I got to tell you, this is the stuff right here, man. You've got a winner in this one. And I'm not just saying that because we're on this together. I've told you that before. There's something different about your brewery and about your the way you handle things, the way your artwork comes out, the way your cans come out, the way you launch that's different from everybody else out there. And there's millions of them that are doing it right now. The oversimplified answer is it isn't me. To be totally straightforward, man. Uh, I, I like to think that everything we do at Hatchet really is as a team. So when you talk about our can art and design, how we name our beers, frankly, we we have a, uh, a little chat uh, app that we use for all of our scheduling and for all of our communication for the company. And 
I'll do two or three different designs and we'll kick it out to the whole team and people will vote on it. They'll give us feedback. They'll say, Hey, change this. What would this look like? You know, this would be a cool name for that beer. You know, it is exceptionally a team effort. And that's what I find so valuable about the, the experience as a whole. Like in, I, I, I really appreciate the comments, um, about the beer. That isn't me. That's our head brewer, man. He is phenomenal. Um, it is, I just feel very grateful to kind of have the people we do on the team. At some point though, and you know this, I mean, you're a grown man. You got to take some of the credit sometime. I mean, I, I think that I perhaps deserve the credit for being part of the team, but like ultimately it, it takes all of us. You know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. And I guess that's what I'm trying to emphasize. But let, let's talk about this. So you take uh, our buddy Chuck's podcast. You make the Pineland Underground. You do a can just like their logo. Uh, and you really, once again, give back to that community. You do launch parties. You do all that kind of stuff. What is it about this that has finally put you at that good place where you, I mean, you were working before and you liked it and stuff, but you would agree this is different, right? Yeah. I think that, and that's part of uh, what I got out of taking some time for myself is uh, reflecting on what val- like I value in life. And that's where for the longest time it was being the best soldier or Green Beret I could be, uh, the best leader I could be. And the, the leadership, the leadership aspect of that is uh, just as valid as it ever has been. But now I've, I've redefined it in regard to, I want to have a positive impact on absolutely everyone I possibly can. I don't see other businesses as competitors. I want to work with them. Um, and a good example is we've had a, uh, a barcade open up about two blocks from us. I don't see them as competitors. I see them as, as part of the community. And if we can help them, which we try to, we try to help them set up their taps. We try to help them get carbon dioxide has been tough to get lately. So we, we, set them up with our carbon dioxide distributor. Those little things are what I find valuable. We brewed a beer for them, like little things like that. That's what I enjoy doing. That's what I get value out of anymore. Feeling like I'm helping people just in just in about every way I I feasibly can. Is it a different feeling than you've ever had? In many ways it is. Um, It's a very different experience. Like uh, in the stress it's funny. I was talking to a couple of breweries. Uh, I actually was out in Charlotte this past week. We might we're planning on doing a, a beer for nine 11 actually with a brewery out there. Um, so they've got an awesome concept. Their, their name is actually old armor. Uh, they're based just Northeast of Charlotte and they do a big event for nine 11 every year. Veteran owned. They were in the 82nd. One of the guys was a Marine, just awesome guys. But that's what I find a ton of value in being able to do stuff with other businesses like that. That's going to give back to the community. How do you come up with the logos? How do you come up with the names? And how do you get this out there to the people? How did you make this the place that everyone comes to drink your beer? Well, the one you just showed, The Void, was actually uh, an old homebrewing recipe of mine. But um, we had that artwork actually roughly done uh, before we opened the brewery. So that's that one is maybe not a great example. The other stuff we do is based off of, we kind of start with the beer and what we want to do with the beers. Like, well, we try to design beers around kind of people, if that makes any sense. Um, Apocalypse was more of a COVID focus, but like the void, I'd say kind of holds a special place in my heart because like, I would like to turn that into a mental health focused beer, if you will. It kind of talks about on the can, 
about like staying away from the abyss if you can. It's got a, a quote of mine that I really like from Nietzsche. But we try to, and to get on my soapbox, um, if anybody's listening from Hashin, I'm sure they're going to hate to hear this, but I see us as trying to do two things. One, we, we really strive to make as high quality a beer and a product as we possibly can. Um, and it isn't just beer, our merch, all of our stuff. Like, I would much rather put all of the money and effort we can into making things that are exceptionally good and to the best of our ability, even if it costs us more, even if it takes more work. And that's one of the things I'm grateful for about our team. We all tend to, to see that the same way. And the other thing I think we really strive to do is build an experience. So it, that could be as simple as coming into the tap room and, uh, and just saying hi and giving good customer service, letting you try multiple beers before you have to commit to buying a full pint of something, helping you pick out a beer, simple things like that. But how do you do that with you know cans? And that's where we put a lot of effort into our, our label art because that's that's how I feel like we try to engage our customers and try to have a positive impact on them ultimately. You're a little different though. There's a couple other service related uh, breweries in the area. You're different too, because you have like what, 25 beers on tap right now at, at the tap room. And that's different. Most have like four to five. I think I heard a guy say four to five to six, you have 25 and you're always constantly trying to build new ones and push new stuff out to the product consumer. Yeah. We try to have, about 20 uh, beers on tap at any given time that are our own. And the way we've done that is we have a large system that does about 450 gallons at a time. We have a smaller one that does about uh, 60 gallons at a time. And that allows us the flexibility to keep that kind of a variety in stock. Frankly, the other breweries in our area are awesome. Uh, we work with them frequently. I actually went over to Railhouse, which is right down the road from us earlier tonight. Just great guys. Uh, and when we opened up, I remember it took uh, our keg washer got delayed from the supplier. And so we went over to Southern Pines Brewing. The guys that started that were actually also Green Berets out of the uh, 1st Battalion. And so they've been nothing but supportive. So they're like, yeah, come on over, wash kegs. <laughs> it, it's it's such a cool industry. It is not competitive in the strict business definition. But yeah, they make phenomenal beer too, frankly. All the breweries around here really do. We did take, I think, a slightly different approach to it. We looked at trying to build a taproom first, um, and we were very taproom focused. Uh, which I think does go in line with our, our mission and really what we're trying to do as far as being a part of the community. But that was just kind of how we approached the problem. What do you think that uh, makes you different? Because we've talked about you, you like all the other ones that are in the area. Other than focusing on the tap room, what do you think makes you guys different and makes you stand out? Because I think you really do stand out. I'm not just telling you that. I think you really do stand out. Is there anything else that you think makes you guys different from everyone else? Uh, maybe the most obvious thing would be our branding. Um, it's something I've always been torn about. Uh, I think that especially with, you know, one of the things that Green Berets almost really pride themselves on is humility and uh, not being ostentatious, not seeking recognition. And that was one of the things that we're like, we want, it's such a part of our story and our background that we want it to be there but we don't want it to be like totally overt. Uh, we don't want it to be so prominent that it's inappropriate, if you will. And so we don't, I, I know we have our story on our website and we, we, I think stay true to it, but we also don't really try to put it out there as like, this is what we are. But I, I do think we do have some power in our branding. Uh, and part of the reason I say that is like, I'll drive up to Raleigh and I'll see a, a hatchet sticker on the back of a car uh, an hour and a half away from the brewery. That's a, that's a cool feeling, you know? So people seem to, it, it seems to resonate with people. I'll put it that way. 
Now, and saying all that, can we talk about the lineage of the logo and where it comes from and why you guys chose that one? Yeah. So um, the hatchet patch originally comes from Vietnam, similar to MACV SOG operations. There are SF teams that were running hatchet force companies or uh, companies of indigenous uh, Vietnamese. They were working with MACV SOG and some other units to uh, conduct operations in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam. And so that's where 3-1, the team that I was on, really drew its lineage. And so we had the hatchet patch. It was uh, kind of part of the team culture. Uh, and so we tried to update that for the business, frankly. Uh, back when I was a team leader, I was homebrewing and I would make kegs of beer and bring it in the team room. It was just, it fit. It fit the culture so well. That's really kind of how we founded ourselves. That's how we started. And so it's just been a part of our story and a part of what we do. Uh, I do think that it, it's fairly pervasive. Like That's why I like to think that we and the people at Hatchet really feel like they're part of the team of people that actually care and actually want to support one another. Yeah, I, I think that's really kind of the impetus behind all of it. Talking about your guys that work with you and for you, what's the difference and what's the similarities in you being an officer, big army, special operations, and in charge of hatchet brewing? There are a lot of similarities, frankly. I think I felt more, I don't know if I'd say isolated as a conventional officer, but like I felt less attached in a negative way. And that's one of the things I loved about SF is it's very team focused. The people there are, they genuinely care about one another. It's something everybody kind of refers to as the brotherhood colloquially. There's a lot of value in that. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that just resonate with me because of that. That was something I wanted to take into Hatchet. And I, I really do hope that our culture has, has shown that. And one of, I, I try to, one of the things I'll, I'll do is it's like, so our head brewer, he runs all of our brewing operations. But um, if he needs help brewing, if he needs help canning, kegging, like I, I make it a point to try to help and be available. Same thing, like I'll, I'll work bar shifts. If we have someone call out sick and we need someone to cover, um, I'll do delivery, you know, drives. I mean, it's it's whatever we need to do. But I think that that's how I get to show people I care, you know. And they did, I'm not too good to deliver beer, frankly, you know. You think your past is what's driven that? Yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah. So a question that we always ask guys at the end of this, at any point in your career or now, do you feel comfortable in your own skin now? I do, yeah. Recent? Has it been a while? I mean, there's definitely been points in my life where I haven't been, and I still I still do not like to be very overt about what accomplishments I've had or what things I've done. Um, frankly, this experience in and of itself is pretty foreign and uncomfortable for me, putting myself out into a public forum. But it, admittedly, talking to Chuck has been a has been enlightening because it's the intent here is not to promote myself as much as it's to promote Hatchet and support the team, um, and that's really what I want to do. But yeah, I do feel like I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin, frankly. That's good to hear. Um, let's talk about a couple of your beers real quick, your your top ones, what people can expect if they come to the tap room there. So our best-selling beer, hands down every month, is our uh, New England-style IPA. It's, uh, we call it Hazy Morning. But uh, I think that I, one of the reasons I really like it is because with most IPAs, you do have that kind of hot bite, that astringency at the end, which is a turnoff for a lot of people. 
This is one that doesn't have that nearly to the, the same degree that you would get with a standard American IPA or West Coast IPA. So that's our best seller. Our next one is Dilgaff, which is an American lager. Uh, frankly, that's a go-to of mine. I like it because it's, it's fairly lighter and ABV. Um, so you can have two or three. I, it, frankly, I, I think it's quality beer. It's not quite a Bud Light, but it's, you get a lot of people that come in and they're not familiar with craft beer and they'll ask, Hey, what do you have that's lighter? And it's might be like a Miller Light or a Coors Light. We usually point them in that direction and get pretty positive feedback about it. So that's always very rewarding. But that's our second best seller. Our third best seller is Combat Honey, which is uh, a beer we did kind of based off a of collab. Uh, a buddy of mine got out. He was on 3-1 with me, but he medically retired and he ended up in Newton Hyde in Ohio. And he started his own kind of organic uh, natural farm up there. And so he does, he's got a bunch of beehives. And so we get all of our honey from him. And that's what goes into that beer. Every batch of that beer includes his honey, uh, which is another really cool experience to have, you know, getting in to support him and really try to build something together, if you will. Uh, those are our top three sellers. Uh, we actually are going to have a, uh, a new core beer, a new flagship, which is Death Machine, which is our Belgian Trapel. It was actually named after another team that I was uh, an SF team that I was in the same company with. Uh, they came back from a deployment and said, hey, we want you to brew a beer for us. And so we put that one together. They seemed to like it. And so we've kind of kept it going, but it's become pretty popular. And so we're at the point where it's going to be a year-round beer instead of just once a quarter. And then we do a, um, you already have seen the void. We do that every fall. So we'll do a, a seasonal and a seasonal sour every quarter. Uh, this last quarter, it was the Krampus, which is a cranberry sour, uh, and the void, which is a black IPA. Krampus is fantastic. Oh, thank you, Matt. <laughs> I know I'm biased, so I always hesitate to say, but, uh, no, I'm really pleased the way that beer turned out. Very good. It's got a very good sour. I told you the the finish on it has, is the perfect amount of sour because it makes you feel not necessarily like you're even drinking a beer um, because I it's got that, that crazy aftertaste or finish to it to me, and I thought it was absolutely amazing, and it's a perfect one for Christmas with the cranberry and all that kind of stuff into it. Um, I don't know how many you could drink at a party without falling on the ground, but uh, <laughs> I think the one that you really need to uh, be careful with is the void. That's what, 8.5? 8.2, yeah. I didn't get a chance to send you the death machine since we hadn't canned it, but um, that one's 9%, so that's a that's a big beer right there. I, I, I just can't tell you enough, man. I, I really can't tell you how impressed I am with this company with this beer and what you guys are doing it's absolutely fantastic and no i really appreciate it man like we it, it's so cool to feel like we're part of such a strong community um and that's maybe that southern pines I, I look at we talk about team hatchet it's like i look at that as our employees but we want to take care of our, our customers that walk into the tap room we want to take care of the other businesses that work with us it's just been an exceptionally rewarding experience and when people when people provide positive feedback about it it's it's just yeah, it's a great feeling, man. So I appreciate you saying it. All right, let's talk about where people can find you, where they can get swag, and then where they can find out more about Hatchet and then more about you. Yeah, if you're interested, we are on Instagram. So that's probably the primary social media method we use to like put out information about new beers, about uh, what we're doing in the tap room. Uh, so we're that's at Hatchet Brewing is our uh, 
our Instagram page, and then we're on Facebook too at Hatcher Brewing Company. And then feel free to jump on the website. We've got uh, all our merch up there for sale. So we just started that last month, so that's still fairly new. But uh, already we're seeing some positive feedback about that, so I think we'll continue to keep that going. But yeah, if you want merch, we'll send it all the way to the other side of the country. We had an order from, I think, Anaheim, California, just uh, that went out in the mail today. And anything about your swag, uh, you need to cover what is in there because you guys cover a ton of stuff in there. We do a little bit of everything, frankly. Um, we've got tin tackers, so like the signs that you can put up. We've got some shirts. We've got, uh, oh yeah, nice. <laughs> we've got hoodies. Uh, we've got uh, some candles. So we use we recycle the old cans that we had uh, that <laughs> we couldn't use for canning because either they fell on the ground or for whatever reason. Uh, we send those to another company and they fill them with wax. And so we have those candles up there. We've got some, I'm a big fan of dogs. It fits the, the industry overall, which is nice, but we've got some dog merch on there as well. So just a little bit of everything. Let's talk about those candles for a second. Those are like 30 hour candles. Uh, it was an exceptionally long burn time on them. Uh, and I was really impressed with that. Isn't that what it is? Like 30 hour burn time or something. It's, it's amazing how long it is. I thought it might be 80. Um, I had it's, one. It, it was crazy where I saw it and I was like, holy shit, I can't believe that thing burns that long. Well, and that's always what I hate about getting candles from like the, uh, the grocery store. It's like they last for a day, but uh, that's where we do. Like I said, we try to make sure that we're providing something that's like quality. Like if, if we're not willing to buy it, why would anybody else be? I remember testing those things out. I had that same thing lit on my, uh, my kitchen counter. I probably maybe shouldn't admit this, but like for a week straight, Never even blew it out, but it lasted about a week. Yeah, so everyone can get that there. Uh, hatchetbrewing.com, that's where all the swag is at. At Hatchet Brewing is the Instagram, correct? Right, and our website's hatchetbrewing.com. Anywhere else that you want to send people to, or is there anything else that you want to promote that's coming up or that people can help with, even if they're not there where you're at, maybe they can do it over the web or anything like that? Um, we're always trying to get involved with charities. Uh, tomorrow night we're doing a, uh, a charity event for Ben Powers, uh, who's a local, uh, retired Green Beret. He's going to climb, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro here next week, I think, and all for a charity called the Water Boys. And so, uh, they're going to climb, climb Mount Kilimanjaro in order to raise money to, um, build wells in Africa for people that don't have clean drinking water. So I would just say, check out the Instagram stuff. We're always trying to promote different charities and different things in our area. We do try to be fairly scrutinizing about it. We do look at financials for charities. We uh, make sure it's 501c3s. Yeah, uh, any support you guys would be interested in providing, we'd greatly appreciate it. Is there ever a time where people can like PayPal, anything like that in order to help out the charities if they're not going to be in the area? Because I, I think you could get a bigger following out there. Is there anything like that that's available to them? Yeah, we usually put that on Instagram. Uh, for example, for the charity tomorrow, there's a link in the uh, Instagram post. You can click on, it'll take you to the website and you can donate there. So we do try to do that as often as possible. Perfect. Uh, man, this was an amazing conversation. I think we got in a lot deeper than, than I believed we were going to in the beginning. And, and you have an amazing story and an amazing company. And I'm so glad that you came on here. I'm so glad that we could spend time together. And I, I hope for big things in the future. Um, guys, I think that's going to be it. Now, you know where you can find Greg, but here's where you can find me. You can always, of course, find me on Instagram, the DTD underscore podcast. 
You can find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast, and you can find me on YouTube, where all these conversations are in video form. But the one-stop shop for you, it's going to be dtdpodcast.net. It's got audio. It's got video. Greg has his own episode page. All the pictures that we talked about are on that episode page. All the links that we talked about on that episode page. It's one of the greatest things that we've done in this podcast is build that website to get you in touch with the people who are on the show and learn more about them because we feel that it's very important. Don't forget to check him out, hatchetbrewing.com. Also, you need to stop by our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. Now we talk about them every week, and we tell you they're an officer-owned business. They're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped as soon as they're made so that you get the freshest coffee available. It's roasted by people that know how to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause. They give 50% back of their profits to family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. Make sure you go by, check out all their flavors, check out all their blends. They've got canine bites, cocoa, gear and merch, policecoffee.com. And when you go there, DJK10 will give you 10% off your order. That's Greg. I'm DJ. Catch us next week. We'll talk to you later. See you guys. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it.